This episode of the Two Fit Crazies in a Microphone podcast is brought to you by TFC Productions. Christine, what's the TFC stand for? Two Fit Crazies. Two Fit Crazy Productions? Yeah. Yeah, we produce some podcasts. So, um, you know, people always come up to us uh, and ask us how we can help them or, you know, what we can do. How did you get started in podcasting? What do I need? This and that. We Let got us you covered. help you. We Let got- us consult with you. We'll walk you through every step. Got you covered. And then from there, if you feel like recording and sending us the information, we'll produce it. We'll package it. We'll send it back to you nice with a bow on it. And uh, you just upload it yourself. And we'll uh, give you all those marketing tools and everything you need to do in the meantime. That's right. From the leaders in Podcasting 101. TFC Productions. So we're also brought to you by ContiFit.com, which is your virtual online fitness and wellness. You name it, you need it, we're here for you. And uh, make sure, check out the Let's Face It Together Facial Fitness and Rehabilitation Program, working with special populations around the world. Get virtually certified today. Don't miss out. Also brought to you by High Five Health and Fitness. We've got virtual online health coaching uh, sessions with me, uh, my company, High Five Health and Fitness. Uh, All the information, highfivehealthandfitness.com. It is Christine Conti. And I'm Brian Prendergast. And we are Two Fit Crazy. And a microphone. We are where it's at, Brian. We've got a lot. This, We've this been is where rolling with the podcasts. And I know, Spotify, here we are, baby. <laughs> here we are. You want some of that Joe Rogan money? Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. So we are, we actually have a three-peat guest coming at you today um, by the name of Dr. Jason Carp. My man writes some books. 10 books out now, working on 11, um, has been on here before to talk about um, Revolution Running, R-E-V-O-2-L-U-T-I-O-N. Um, he, V-O-2, get it. Yeah, V-O-2, get it. V-O-2. Get it. Okay. He, he, he will explain everything. But we actually invited him back on here because he has quite the controversial book um, that just released i think you're playing into the to the controversy well, there. wanna, there's nothing controversial about this topic or subject i wanted to dangle the carrot okay or so to say um <laughs> stop laughing but he just came out with a, but we actually i mean this has been pretty like we have been pretty uh you know controversial lately but um he just came out with a book called sex or size Yes, you heard it right. He has his PhD, exercise science, won million awards, um, super amazing. He's like, you know, go-to exercise science, running, physiology, uh, pretty amazing. And um, he was always kind of interested in the whole relationship between exercise and sex. And he pretty much went out and backed this up by science and research. And he's going to share... Aside from chapter three, which you'll have to <laughs> learn you'll, when you hear the podcast, that's what Brian and I both wrote down for, to do extensive research on those. Um, but I think it's fascinating um, the way that he's putting together this relationship between exercise and sex because we've all had – we've all – not had, but we've all heard um, you know, different things of you should, you shouldn't, what, how it affects you. Viewpoints and opinions and right. really nothing more than that. So you know, really it's just the examination of the relationship between uh, you know, two uh, behaviors that we as animals uh, do in, and really and, and for the most part it's, it's a form of our evolution and, and you know, continuing on as a species. Um, exercise is very important. Sex is very important. He looks at the, at the, you know, the, the relationship between the two. Uh, simple enough. And, uh, You'll have to listen to that. And to what he does is he uses scientific information and data and research and, and you know, either dispels or, or you know, um, signs off on some of the common myths or mm-hmm. really, you know, truths that are, you know, uh, in the air, surrounding the area Just of do it. Sex That's what exercise. I learned today. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah, you're not going to Whatever that means to you. So, um, in addition... He he does have some other things coming out. So there is a, another book on the way. This is going to be 11, and that's Lose It Forever, The Six Habits for Successful Losers. And he goes on and talks. He couldn't give everything away to us, but um, did give us some clues. And you're going to have to listen to the episode to hear all about his opinion on some of these of what what did these successful people do? Um, you know, it's more than just – 
hey, I'm going to restrict my calories and increase exercise. There's more to it. So I think that's a really powerful read for everyone out there. Um, and then we also picked his brain on, you know, kind of the state of the state. I asked him about, you know, what the deal is with wearing masks and how that affects your breathing and while exercising, while exercising, because that's a huge, you know, kind of hot topic right now of what's going to happen. And, um, yeah. So a lot going into it here, but it's a it's a great episode, and and uh, uh, Dr. Carp is always very interesting, and uh, and you know he comes with facts. It's scientific facts. Yeah. It's science, right? It's mm-hmm. true. So um so let's let him have uh, uh you know his time here, and uh, we hope you enjoy it, and uh, let us know. Enjoy. Christine Conti. And I'm Brian Prendergast. And we are Two Fit Crazies. And the microphone. We are where it's at. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing well. You know what? We've got a three-peat guest today on the show coming to us from across the country in beautiful San Diego, Dr. Jason Carp. How are you? Good. How are you? Do I win a free toaster oven for being a three-peater? Uh, <laughs> there may be like a jacket involved at some point. Uh, I don't know. If this were a race, you'd be behind a couple because we've even had some four-peats at this point. Oh. Well, that's – I mean, there's been exceptions though. Like maybe it was like a short something, but yeah. it's You're up there. You're up there. So it's, uh, it's pretty awesome because we love having you on the show. You're always – doing something new or different or book or, you know, what are you up to? Um, and I know that you have been hit by uh, the stoppage of travel and conventions as we have. And um, what are you up to now? I know it's not traveling all over the world right this second. Right. Yeah. So uh, everything has kind of been shut down in that regard. So I've been teaching uh, my certification course online. I've done that a couple of times already over the last month. And then uh, working on books, still keeping busy. I'm, I'm also back in school, and so you know, my classes have been online. The semester just ended. The next semester, summer semester, starts next week. So I'm still working on that. And so still keeping busy and trying to be productive, but things definitely have changed from what they were before. How did you do in your semester? <laughs> yeah. What do we? It's well, an MBA, I, right, Doc? Yeah, I work on an MBA. It's kind of funny because at this time, you know, because I'm doing this part time and because this is just like an added degree that, uh, you know, I don't care about grades and it's liberating when you don't care about grades. Like all the other students, they're so concerned about every assignment and every exam and how well they do. And, they're, they're, you know, they're searching for every point they can get and they ask about, can we get extra credit? And, and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, I don't care about, you know, you don't care when you get older and you already have your degrees and. You know, so I don't care about the grades as long as I get the minimum of what I need to get the degree. Then that's all that matters to me. And try to learn as much as I can along the way. So but always, then, pretty you know, much. So, yeah. yeah. So, 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 so you did an amazing job. Classes, but I don't care about <laughs> the exact grades. So, so what is a bookworm that doesn't care about grades getting uh, <laughs> like yourself? What is a what, what are you talking? Straight A's? Come on, shoot a straight. Oh no, actually, I've only gotten. Well, I've had uh, um, seven classes so far. And I've only gotten one A out of the seven classes. So all the other grades have been, you know, B's, some form of a B, B minus, B plus, B. But that's all I need. I need a, you need a 3.0 to get the degree. So as long as I have a 3.0 when it's time to graduate, that's all that matters. Do they know who they're dealing with? <laughs> it's Dr. Jason. No, I should have called the professors. But, you know, I'm older than many of the professors. So I mean, it's just a weird, you know, it's weird to go back to school after all these years. I love it. But... Yeah, I mean, does it really matter if you get an A or a B? You know, it's not like I'm going to be applying for management-type jobs with the MBA. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, nobody's ever going to see my transcript. It's got to so be really so great. Matter. Once if I they... have a degree, then that's, that's all I care about. And 
try to learn as much as I can. If they ask to see your transcript, just send it to them with a bunch of your books. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> here's my books and here's my awards <laughs> that I've won around the, around the world. So, so there's that. Oh my goodness. So let's, um, let's talk about since the last time you were on here, you have now come out with another, yet another book. How, what is, what are we up to now on book totals? Uh, well, the 10th one will come out in August. So I've had two right now back to back. One just came out recently this past month. And then the other one is already impressed with the publisher. It's in their hands. So that'll come out in August. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. So yeah, it's great. It's a lot of typing. Those typing classes are really paying off, huh? <laughs> yeah, I should have paid more attention in typing class when I was in middle school because I still do the hunt and peck method. Oh no! Oh my goodness! So let's talk about the last. So you said back to back books. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what the last two back to back was. Give us titles, concepts, theories. Go. Well, they're very different. I don't know how many of your listeners will, uh, will like some of the uh, topics I discussed, but like the, the one that just came out, you know, even though I realize it's a sensitive subject, it's a subject that, that I find fascinating, and I hope that everyone else will too. That the, It's about the relationship between exercise and sex. You know, for a long time, I've, you know, I've looked at, well, most people know already how I look at running and how that gets us back to being animals and it's because it's, it's who we are and, you know, we evolved to run. But the, the other side of that is, is sex, that um, sex is also perhaps the best expression of who we are as physical beings, as animals. And you know, we, we have been given this physical urge to have sex in order to guarantee continuation of the species. And so we have to have sex. It's a biological urge to do so, so that we make sure that, you know, that we continue the species. Because without sex, the species won't continue. And so together, exercise and sex, they actually have a lot of interesting similarities. The hormonal response to both and, and how there's a greater response to sexual stimulation if you exercise before you have sex. There's a lot of interesting relationships between exercise and sex that I find absolutely fascinating. And so I wrote a book about how you can enhance your sex life through exercise. Now, has this been something that has been studied and researched before? Yeah, quite or, a bit. There's yeah. actually a lot of research, probably the most prolific researcher in the area of sexual response uh, with exercise is uh, Cindy Meston, who's at the University of Texas at Austin. So I spent a lot of time reading her research. I've known about her for a long time, and uh, but I, I really dove into her research a lot in the book. And there's a lot of research, not just hers, but there's a lot of research on looking at different aspects of exercise and how it affects different parts of your sexual life, like response to sexual stimulation and libido. There's a lot of research on the effects of exercise on libido. There's actually been a lot of research on, you know, a question that a lot of people have is, you know, should you have sex before a race or is it okay to have sex before a race? And there's been a lot of research even on that where they have couples who, um, you know, either abstain from sex the night before some um, fitness test. You know, a lot of this stuff is done in the lab. So they'll have some kind of fitness test that they have to do in the lab the next day after having sex the night before. So they do different conditions, having sex the night before, not having sex the night before, and looking at the differences. And so there's actually quite a lot of research on this that most people you know, don't know because there's a lot of people interested in sex. And so you know, I actually went to, when I did my PhD at Indiana University, the, the famous Kinsey Institute is at Indiana University. But even though I wasn't part of their group there because that's not what my research was in when I was working on my degree, but, you know, I went over to the Kinsey Institute a few times and I've always been interested in, in what they do. There was a famous movie that came out that uh, Liam Neeson played Alfred Kinsey. So uh, there's actually a lot of research on sex and, and, and even a lot of research on the effects of exercise on sex. So what does the data tell us? What's the consensus? What are the consensuses? And, uh, you know, how does sex affect exercise? Exercise affects sex. And I guess answer that question. Is it better to abstain prior to uh, something, uh, uh, you know, a performance, uh, a race or, you know, I know Muhammad Ali uh, famously always abstained before a match, but I think it was like three days before or something like that. Uh, go ahead and tell us what, you know. 
Well, I don't want to give the whole book away. Obviously, I want people to read the book. But uh, the short answer is that it doesn't matter if you have sex or not the night before a race. It's not going to affect your, you know, your athletic performance. That's kind of a big myth that a lot of coaches will tell their athletes not to have sex because there's this, there's this, um, you know, faulty misunderstanding that somehow having sex depletes your energy. And that's why you don't have the energy to perform physically, whatever the athletic event may be. But there is no research to support that claim that you can't lose energy by having sex the way you can lose energy, like by going on a long run, it depletes your glycogen stores. And so you don't have as much energy for a subsequent activity. It's not the same with sex. So the answer is that if sex is something that relaxes you and it gets your mind off the nervousness of the race tomorrow morning, then it's okay to have sex. If sex is something that you think could impede your performance because of some anxiety you have about it, then it would be better to abstain from sex. So it's really about how you perceive the act of sex. If you think it's going to take away from your performance, then it's probably better to abstain from it. But physiologically, it's not harmful or helpful to have sex the night before athletic competition. That's interesting. So I guess what, what I would love to hear is that you said, um, before we started talking about this, this is kind of controversial. Why, why is there this stigma that we can't talk about, you know, sex and exercise and what, what is the sticking point that you have, I guess, encountered with people when you present these ideas? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to that uh, sex has historically been thought of something that is a private matter, you know, and uh, people still, even in 2020, feel kind of weird about talking about sex openly, you know, even though it's all over the media, you know, I mean, it's not like, we don't, we don't see it every day. It's not like it's behind closed doors anymore because, you know, I mean, for crying out loud, you know, we have uh, an Olympic gold medal decathlete going on national TV talking about how he wants to transition into being a female. So I mean, there's no reason why we can't talk about this stuff now because it is in our face all the time. But, uh, you know, it's hard to suddenly talk openly as an adult about a subject that you've learned for years to be so silent about. And that's part of the, the reason why people, you know, have these hangups about sex. But, you know, but what I tried to create with this book is a safe place where people can really, you know, go through the pages, you know, feeling safe to talk about sex and to answer the questions that people have. You know, I interviewed for some of the, the more female related subjects, like what is it like to run during your period and things like that. You know, I interviewed other experts, you know, sexologists and people who have studied this. And so it's not just my voice in the book. You know, I realize sometimes females don't like to be, um, you know, they don't like to read stuff written by a male. And so that's why I brought in the, uh, the voice of other females who can talk to this issue. But the book is entirely research-based. There's a whole list of, there's about 100 references at the end of the book. So it's not my opinions here. It's all research-based. It's all talking about, you know, what does the science show? And uh, you know, I, I want it to be a, a place where people feel safe to talk about this and explore their sexuality through the eyes and through the lens of exercise, because that's what my background is. It's an exercise physiology. And so it's fascinating when you really look at the, the um, interdependence between exercise and sex and and how these two expressions of who we are as animals affect each other and affect how we look at these things. So who do you hope will be your main, I guess, demographic? Who needs to read this? Is this a, is this something that you think all athletes should read, coaches? Is this something, you know, kind of that should be infused into an exercise physiology major? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I want, the book really is for people who want to explore sex, who, who look at sex kind of like the way I do, that it's, you know, it is this expression of who we are as physical beings. And so I hope that by reading the book, it gives people a different perspective of sex through the lens of exercise and 
and how they can enhance their, their sex lives. You know, how doing a workout 15 minutes before you have sex will enhance the sexual experience. And so that's where I want to read the book, people who want to explore their, their sexuality and feel more comfortable with it and understand how they can improve their sex life through exercise. How about in terms of uh, of conception? Um, you know, is there any evidence that shows that you know, like you said, exercising prior to uh, intercourse or anything will in, uh, improve the uh, percentage or the opportunity to become pregnant? Um, you know, from the male perspective, the female perspective, is there anything that uh, correlates there? Yeah, there's actually been a lot of research on that too, looking at sperm count and people who train a lot, women who train a lot and what that does to sperm count and, and sperm health. I talk about that in the book. And then from the female's perspective, you know, about the loss of the menstrual cycle and how that can prevent a, a woman from becoming pregnant. So yeah, the book, uh, the last chapter of the book goes through all these questions. You know, I, I titled the chapter the questions that, you know, that you're afraid to ask or that your coach or mother never answered. And so uh, it, it explores those issues that, uh, you know, some exercise is good, but there is some research to, to suggest that when it comes to things like sperm count and sperm health, that uh, a lot of exercise, specifically a lot of endurance exercise, I mean, we're talking about extreme endurance exercise, that it, it can negatively impact, you know, sperm motility. That's the phrase that's usually used, the ability for the sperm to be good swimmers. You know, sperm motility and sperm count. But then, of course, there are plenty of elite endurance athletes who have no problem having children. And so you, know, you got to also you know, look at the science, but also look at well, what happens in society. You know, there's plenty of people who run a lot who have perfectly good functioning sperm and they have no problem having children. So there's a lot to really sink your teeth into with this. There's also a lot of research that I talk about in the book about how you know, a lack of either sex or exercise hurts your health, that we need sex to be to be healthy, that people who don't have sex, like I talk about the funny part of the book, I talk about, uh, you know, um, a segment of the population who doesn't have sex, nuns, and I talk about the research on nuns and how they have an increased risk of breast cancer and how that's tied to their lack of sexual activity. I and mean, it's fascinating. You really pour through the research and you see that just like we need exercise to be healthier and people who don't exercise that hurts their health, the same is true for sex. And the reason it's the same is true for sex is because both exercise and sex come from the same primal source. They come from the, both the same primal need. We have to exercise and we have to have sex to be healthy. And so it's just so interesting, the similarities between both of these physical activities. So now let's go, let's go forward. So you have, so tell everyone, by the way, I don't even think we said it. Tell everyone the title of the book and where they can find it. Oh, this one is called uh, Sexercise, for lack of a better term. And uh, the subtitle is Exercising the Way to Better Sex. Are there specific exercises? Because I'm going to write this down for my husband. Just kidding. So chapter three of the book goes through... uh, specific exercises and if you put the exercises together they form workouts for different sexual positions so i tried to also make the book fun i didn't want it to be all academic and so the book is chapter three has a a list of and pictures of sex fitness positions so different sex positions in which either the male has to be fit to do the position or the female or both of them and then there are matching exercises to to quote train for those positions. So in the way the book is laid out, it's side by side. So like on the left hand page you have the exercise and, and then there's somebody demonstrating the exercise, a picture of that. And then on the right hand page you have the corresponding sex fitness position. So you can actually visually see why that workout or why that exercise trains for that position. So let me write this down. Chapter three. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Chapter three. <laughs> How about personal research, Doc? Any personal research going into this book? Well, I'm, I'm a single guy, so <laughs> unfortunately I didn't have as much personal research as I would have liked to have had while I was writing the book. But it definitely is something to explore with your partner. I mean, it would be fun to you know, just flip the page and say, hey, tonight we're going to try this 
you know, sex fitness position and then see if you can do it. And if you can't do it, then you have the workout there to train to do it. So it, it can be a lot of fun for couples to do. I feel like this, you should also go to like retreats. There should be a retreat, Dr. Carp. Have you thought about this yet? I haven't, but sure, there's a lot of avenues I guess I could explore with the book. A lot of avenues. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So I want to make sure that we got the title, we got the book, because it's fascinating. You don't always see this. Um, and again, I really do think sometimes it's taboo, you know, talking about sex and, and how important that is for, you know, physical touch. I mean, we're living in a coronavirus where you, you know, I'm like giving air high fives to people from like six feet away. And I mean, human touch is so important, not just right. physically, but mentally. Um, social animals. And it's unfortunate that this is going on right now because it does affect us in, in other ways. And we try to solve one problem, which is to stop the spread of the virus, but we cause a, a lot of other problems. And those other problems will take much longer to get over. So now, um, again, I just I think it's really important that people have a have a place to go for you know Absolutely. reference. Absolutely, and again, we could make light of it, but it, there really is you know legitimate research that goes to back this, and I hope that all of our listeners from around the world get a chance to. Uh, to maybe have a little bit more fun and um, pick up sex or size. I love it. What else, by the way, that you were talking about another book that I think you need to talk about to our listeners. So what else is going on? Yeah, so the next book that comes out is in August that is on the, the habits of successful weight losers from the National Weight Control Registry. So there's a registry of people in the U.S. It's up to over 10,000 people now. It was founded in 1994 by two researchers of weight loss. And they have been collecting data on these people who are successful weight losers. So to be in the registry, uh, it's open to anyone who has lost at least 30 pounds and have kept off those at least 30 pounds for at least one year. But when you look at the, the average number of weight average number of pounds of weight loss and the average number of years is actually a lot greater than that from the people in the registry. But that's the minimum amount and duration of time in order to be in the registry. And it's remarkable to me that, you know, with all the weight loss books on the market, there's nothing that has shown people exactly what needs to be done to keep the weight off, because that's really what's more important. There's lots of ways to lose weight, but what's, what good is losing weight if you just gain the weight back? And as most people know, most people who lose weight gain it back. So it's not enough to just tell people this is what you need to do to lose weight. You have to show people these are the specific habits from a research standpoint, not just what this is what my next door neighbor did. You know, the book is all about the data from the National Weight Control Registry. So there have been uh, now there's up to 40 studies that have been published from the, the data from the National Weight Control Registry. So I went through all 40 studies and I talk about them in the book. And I come up with what are the six habits of the, the title of the book is Lose It Forever. And the subtitle is the, the Six Habits of Successful Weight Losers from the National Weight Control Registry. And so each habit is a chapter. And so there are six chapters and plus the introduction where I talk about the actual registry. But there are six main chapters in the book of the six habits of successful weight losers. And so there are specific things and as you learn when you read through the, the research, there are varied ways that people lose weight. You know, some people go on a specific program, a specific weight loss diet. Other people just do it on their own. Some people go high carb, low carb. There's lots of different ways that people lose weight. But there are very specific things that successful weight losers have in common to keep the weight off. There's not varied ways of keeping the weight off. And I find that very interesting that there are specific habits that are similar between these successful weight losers. And so that's what the book is all about. I talk about, you know, what these successful weight losers have actually done. And it's all based on the research from the National Weight Control Registry. Okay. So again, we don't want to give it all away, but what, what's the insight there? Well, some people may be able to guess, like one is control the habit. And one of the habits is controlling calories. But then I dig deeper and I said, well, what are the calories? So we know what the average number of calories are because the research tells us that. 
We know how many calories these people consume per day. We know the composition of those calories, whether they're eating, you know, how much carbohydrate, how much fat, how much protein. And we know why they're eating those amounts. And so the research is very revealing about exactly what these people are doing and, and how they're controlling their calories, how they're manipulating their carbohydrate, fat, and protein, and uh, how much exercise they do. So one of the habits, I can give that away, One because that's an obvious one. One of the habits is that these people do a lot of exercise every single day. They average about an hour's worth of exercise every day of their lives. And then I also bring in other research into the book because that's stuff I have talked about before in my past weight loss book, Run Your Fat Off, is that, you know, if people want an overall summary of the weight loss research, I mean, there's a lot that you can imagine, but an overall summary is that the diet or the nutrition is what gets the weight off. Cutting the calories is what gets the weight off, but exercise is what keeps the weight off. There's plenty of research to show that the amount of weight on your body is directly proportional to the amount of exercise that you do. And that's why it's always funny to me when you hear in the fitness industry, a lot of people talk about that your physique is 80% nutrition and 20% exercise. That's totally untrue. There's no research to support those percentages. And actually for the long term, meaning for the rest of your life to keep the weight off, exercise is a lot more important because you can't just keep cutting calories. You have to maintain your resting metabolic rate, which for most people, it's somewhere around 1,300 to 1,500 calories a day, depending on the size of the person. And so, you know, you can't just eat 800 calories a day. You keep that up and you're eventually going to die because that's below your resting metabolic rate. And so you can't just keep cutting calories to lose weight. In order to keep the weight down and to prevent weight gain, you have to exercise and you have to exercise a lot. And that's one thing that the, the research from the, the National Weight Control Registry has shown is that the people, some of their research has shown what are the predictive factors of the people who are gaining weight because they don't all succeed. Some people, you know, they may have lost 50 pounds and then they become part of the registry and these people are tracked every year. They send questionnaires every year and they're tracked. And uh, one of the things that predicts how much weight people are going to gain is how much they reduce their exercise. The people who don't exercise as much for whatever reason, because life events happen or they just get lazy or whatever the reason is why they're reducing how much exercise they do. Those are the people who put the weight back on. And so it's, it's really a fascinating discussion as to really what's driving the bus. Why do people gain the weight back? What can help prevent people from gaining the weight back? And you see how important exercise really plays a role. So take let's take out the equation of you know any medical conditions right now. And I, I love the one thing I love talking about is because I get into it with people all the time about, you know, they food is very important. Nutrition, hands down, is super, super important. And I think it's important to go back for our listeners because this is something that's big right now. You know, again, you hear the 80 20 all the time. No, it's 80%. And I'm like, guys, how, how many calories are you going to restrict? Why can we not put in more exercise? You know, or Christine, how do you stay fit? Well, I work really hard. I, I exercise a whole bunch. I make sure that I'm moving on days that I don't have quote unquote exercise. I'm still walking. I'm still moving. I'm still active. I have my watch that tells me, you know, how many count. Cal- I mean, it's not perfect, but it says, you know, roundabout of what you're burning, the steps you're taking. If I so choose to look at it and, what do you think is the, what's the problem? I mean, you get riled up like I do about this with people. What is it that, that is keeping them from when we shake them and say, you need to move more from actually doing it and believing it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's multifactorial, but I think it all comes down to that. It's It's hard. You know, our society is not like it used to be where you had to be physically active. Now, you know, most people can get through life without being. I mean, you can sit and have a desk job for 40 years. So I think there's two issues. One, you have to, as we become more technologically advanced, it supports a sedentary lifestyle. And so you have to cut against the grain of society to be physically active. Whereas 100 years ago, that wasn't the case. Now we're becoming more and more technologically advanced. The internet itself keeps people in front of their computers. And so you just have to keep being, you have to keep cutting against the grain of society 
because society is moving in one direction to keep us more sedentary with all the technology we have. But that's bad for our health. The other issue is that there is no immediate danger to being sedentary. You know, it's no, the thing that will change people's behavior is an immediate danger, an immediate threat. You know, it's the same with smoking. You can smoke for 40 years before it actually comes back to hurt you. You know, and that's why it's so hard to get people to stop smoking because you can smoke today. You're not going to die tomorrow. You may not die for 40 years. And it's the same thing with exercise. If you don't exercise today, it's not going to hurt you tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. And so that those are the two main problems, I think. That number one, our society is moving in the direction opposite to being more physically active. And so you have to ask people to cut against that grain in order to be physically active. And that's one thing that I talk about in the book, that that these successful weight losers are able to do that. They have a system in place. This book is all about creating habits. At the end of each chapter, after I present the research, I talk about how do you create the habits? Because you can't just tell people be more physically active. You can't just tell people to eat less. That doesn't work. You have to create that habit. And so there are things you need to put in your life to create those cues to create the habit. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is the fact that there's no immediate danger. I think there's those two things combined is the reason why it's hard to get people to be physically active. Do you think that people are going to see the current situation as possibly an immediate danger to uh, being in poor health? I, I hope. I mean, I, you know, yes, I'm seeing just, you know, anecdotally, I'm seeing more people walking and running around my neighborhood. Me too. Will that habit continue when people get busy again? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how long this lasts because it takes a long time to create that habit so it lasts. Here's, so I don't know. Now people have more time because they're working from home. They don't have to right. you know, commute back and forth to a job. I and mean, look how much time people spend in their cars just driving back and forth to work every day. That's lost time that people have now. Here's my worry. So, Here's my worry with this. The way things were before, yeah, it depends. It depends on how important people perceive their health and the physical and how physical activity ties into that health. How do we scare the hell out of everyone? Yeah. More yeah, than this no, to get right. them moving because I am like miss optimistic usually. Like, yes, you can. We got this. And I do see a lot of people out walking and whatnot. I also see the same people out walking that I used to see at the parks because all the parks are closed. So I'm, I'm kind of torn as to are we seeing more people out or are we just seeing people in different locations? That's number one. Number two is that all the people that would be attending you know, gyms and things like that, I would say that you know, it's not that – I don't even know that it's 50% of the people that were, you know, in gyms or working out daily are still doing that even when presented with, you know, virtual or online options. My fear is, well, I'm fine with, you know, I I I don't know how if they're not scared now, how are we going to get them even motivated after that? I've I'm I'm really trying to wrap my head around this whole thing. It's a difficult thing. A lot of people, I think, have that same question. You know, I mean, is it even motivating to work from a place of fear? You know, is it is that even the right way to approach it? Is right. it that trying to scare people? I don't know. The media is certainly trying to scare people now with this pandemic. I see people running outside with a mask on. Like, <laughs> that's not necessary. But people work from a place of fear all the time. So I don't know. I don't know what strategy is going to work or if we are just uh, doomed to to not have this ever work, you know, because we always have this opposing force of technology working against us. And so, you know, how do you tell a teenager these days that you got to go outside and play in the, the playground or in the street with your friends and not play video games? You know, as as we become more and more technologically advanced, it's going to be harder and harder for people to push back against that and go outside and be physically active. How about beyond, uh, you know, beyond food and exercise? What does what does the data show us? Uh, research show us 
uh, with the people of success? Any emotional ties or maybe uh, passion or, you know, even career satisfaction or anything like that that ties into uh, um, long-term weight loss? Uh, it's nothing like that, but, uh, I mean, it's something, again, I don't want to give away all the habits, but uh, one of them is uh, eat breakfast. People okay. think that, well, if they skip breakfast, that that's better for their weight loss. It's actually the opposite. People who lose weight and keep it off for the rest of their lives are eating breakfast every day. So that's another habit of successful weight losers. And then an overriding one, and I think I have this chapter one in the book, is uh, live with intention. You have to have the intention. So I talk about the research on that has examined intention in people and how that affects their actions. You know, it's got to be something that you really want to do. It can't just be something casual. You know, you have to set the intention, and then even that's not enough. Once you set the intention, there has to be action steps put in place so that you carry through that intention. You know, like I give the example of that if you make a plan for tomorrow, say you're going to go do, you make an intention today to do something tomorrow, but you have to then, when tomorrow comes, you have to reset that intention. The intention doesn't just pass through time and affect what you do tomorrow. You can't just say, today I'm going to do something tomorrow, and automatically it happens. Tomorrow comes, and that intention has to be reset so that the action actually takes place. And so there are things that you can do. There are cues that you can put in place to create these habits. And so that's the driving theme throughout the book and for lasting change is that you have to have cues, specific cues in place, whether those cues are physical cues or auditory cues or some kind of signal, some kind of a cue that is placed in the person's life in order for the action to take place and for that intention to lead to action and to create the habit. Because habits, as I talk about in the book, habits are subconscious. They're not conscious things. We do things that we're not even aware of, and that's the definition of habit. So in order... For us to change bad habits, we have to bring them out of subconscious control and make them more conscious. So, like I talk about some of the, like I talk about other research in the book, you know, not tangential to the, the discussion of the National Weight Control Registry. And some of the research I talk about is there's this fascinating research done on eating popcorn at a movie theater. And you know that if you are given if you always eat popcorn when you go to a movie, if that's your habit, that you always get popcorn when you go to the movies, that even if you are given stale popcorn, you will still eat the popcorn, even if it's stale. But then if you are told to eat the popcorn with your non-dominant hand, so say you're right-handed and you always dig into the popcorn with your right hand, and you are told to eat the popcorn with your left hand, guess what happens? You stop eating the stale popcorn. Because now you have brought that habit into conscious control rather than subconscious control, and you're more aware of what you're doing. And so people stop eating the popcorn when it's stale compared to when it's fresh if they're told to eat the popcorn with a non-dominant hand. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. You dig into the research on the creation of habits and why people do what they do and how to change those habits by putting some kind of cue in place that causes that habit to become conscious rather than subconscious. And that's the starting point for changing your bad habits and turning into the habits that you want to have. All right. I'm going to throw this out here for our listeners because I am that person who has the habit with the, I only, I really only eat and pick with my right dominant hand. So if food is on my right hand side, I eat a lot more than if it's on my left. And I, I will say this from experience this is so true. That whole idea with the popcorn, I didn't know there was research about it. That's that's fascinating to me, but it is so true. So if I am really hungry and, you know, I have snacks out on the right, I'm I'm going for it. If it's on my left, it's annoying to me. Like I, you know, and even if I drive cuz I'm so busy sometimes I eat in the car, which I know I shouldn't. Um but it's always to my right. So anything to my right is I know that's like my bad habit hand. And I should probably sit on it or put it behind me. Um, but that's really powerful. That's a really big takeaway even for, you know, our listeners that maybe that could be something that you could try. Try to, you know, go to a party and sit left of that Tostito bowl. Uh. 
you know. So you have to do something that forces you to become conscious of your habits, and that's exactly right. That, that's how the change of habits begin. I have, before we, um, I definitely want to ask you this, and I've been dying to hear what you have to say about this. Um, in our COVID world in which we're living, and with all of the new, um, I guess, new guidelines by the CDC and OSHA and all this fun stuff, there are, you know, some of the gyms and fitness facilities are either opening or hopefully opening in the next, you know, month or so. And I see a lot of people saying that, you know, you have to be wearing masks. Now, you have a lot of experience in research in running and in breathing and in exercise science. I would love to hear your thoughts on people going back and working out with masks on. Yeah, well, I mean... I could talk all day about this. I might piss off some of the listeners. Cause, you know, there's always going to be, I mean, people get emotional right now with stuff like this. I mean, I have my own opinions, which is based on science. And, uh, but a lot of people disagree with those, but, uh, it really comes down to, I mean, and again, I'll say this by saying, first saying that I'm not an epidemiologist. I am, I am an exercise physiologist. That is what my background is. I'm not an infectious disease expert, but. If you look at how airborne viruses uh, are transmitted from one person to another, uh, it is perfectly safe to exercise without a mask, especially outdoors. You don't need to walk around your neighborhood or go for a run with a a mask on unless somebody coughs or sneezes within a few inches to a couple of feet from where you are and you happen to inhale those droplets. I mean, think about how you catch other colds and other airborne viruses. Think about how you get the flu. You don't, I've never gotten sick from going outside and running. And even if you're in a gym, you know, somebody would have to be right near you. They'd have to cough or sneeze right in your face. You would have to inhale that or you'd have to shake someone's hand who has been sick and then they've been touching their face and then you shake their hand and then you immediately touch your face and your nose. That's how airborne viruses are transmitted from person to person. You don't need to wear a mask. And actually, if you read the research on the types of masks, and you know, people are just like using bandanas and anything they make from home. That stuff is not effective. You know, air passes right through that. It's not like a surgical mask that is medical grade. And so why people are going out into society wearing a bandana around their mouth and nose and think that that's going to protect them or protect others from them. I mean, that's ludicrous. That, that's not doing anything for them. Yeah, but people don't spend time sitting at home reading through the scientific research and understanding what's going to work and what's not going to work. And yeah, but exercising is perfectly fine. And in fact, exercising is very good for the immune system. It's funny how that's been talked about a lot now. We've known that for many, many years. I mean, uh, there's a lot of researchers. I mean, David Neiman out of Appalachian State University is probably the most prominent researcher in the area of exercise and the immune system. I mean, I've been reading his research for 20 years already. We've known that exercise is good for the immune system for a long time. It's funny how something like this has to happen for that research to now be talked about because there's a lot, we've known this for a while. So what is your, what's your take on now, you know, people going inside and exercising just regarding, you know, breathing? How do you feel about that? perfectly safe you're not gonna you're not likely going to get the virus by touching a dumbbell that someone else touched i mean they would have to you know put their again they would have to have like touch their nose or their mouth because your virus is not always sitting on your hands right it's an airborne virus it has to come from your airways and so if someone like touched their mouth or touched their nose and then they touch the dumbbell and then within a few minutes you touch the dumbbell i mean it's a very small chance that you're going to get the virus that way. You don't get the flu that way. You know, somebody would literally have to cough or sneeze right near you. You know, think about the ways that you've gotten sick in the past. You know, that's why being on an airplane is like the worst place to be to get sick because you're in this enclosed environment with no airflow and, uh, you know, people are right near you. You can't walk away from a person and so we talk about viral load. You know, how heavy is the load that you're, what's the exposure? 
casual contact with somebody is a very low viral load. But being trapped in a room with somebody in close quarters where you're sharing the same air for hours at a time, that's a heavy load. And that's how people typically get sick. And that's why being on an airplane, you know, you're likely to get sick being on an airplane if somebody else near you is sick. Because that's a heavy load. You're trapped on an airplane for hours at a time, a few feet from other people. But being in a gym, you're walking around the gym, going from equipment to equipment, it's a very low load. The chances of getting sick that way are low. And it's not zero, but it's pretty low. You're now in New York City. You're sprinting on a treadmill. And you have on a mask. What's (laughs) happening to your VO2 max and what's going on? Yeah, that's worse. I mean... Because when you breathe, again, I mean, some of the air, unless it's a medical grade man, I mean, some of the air is going to pass through the mask. It's not all going to be trapped in the space between your mask and your mouth. But, you know, I used to do this research when I was back in school working on a PhD. There's a method that you can estimate the person's stroke volume and cardiac output by doing what's called CO2 rebreathing. You can rebreathe your own CO2. And that is to, to a much lesser extent than when you're in the lab. That's what's happening when you wear a mask is that you're going to end up breathing in, you know, the CO2 that you breathe out, you're going to breathe some of that back in. You know, is it severe? Is it going to cause people harm? Yeah, probably not with the masks that people are wearing to go outside, but if done for many hours every day, yeah, it could cause some problems. It could reduce the pH of the blood because you're inhaling your own CO2. It can make you lightheaded. It could have, I mean, is it going to cause death? I don't know. I mean, probably not. I mean, you're probably not going to die from that unless you're highly exposed to the, the CO2. You know, I mean, people, that's the one way in which people commit suicide is CO2, is CO, carbon monoxide. So it's just one extra oxygen on carbon dioxide versus carbon monoxide. So yeah, too, breathing in too much CO2 can be poisonous. But when you're outside doing it, and you're probably not going to be so much CO2 that you're breathing back in that it's going to cause too much harm. But it's not going to be comfortable, especially when you're running hard. It's not going to be comfortable to wear a mask and breathe back in all that CO2. Because the harder you run, the more CO2 you're breathing out. And so you're going to end, end the more rapid the rate of breathing. So you're going to breathe a lot of that CO2 back in. So it's certainly not going to feel comfortable. It can make you lightheaded. And worst case scenario, yeah, it could be detrimental to your immediate health. Well, from from your mouth to God's ears or to the power the powers that be ears, better yet, uh, you know, we hope that this uh, is something, this is the information that they really need in their decision making because, uh, you know, I have a feeling that they're going to really hamstring everybody with the way that they come out with some regulations for getting these gyms open back up. But, you know, uh, whatever, we'll take it as, uh, any step that we can. My question to you with uh, is let's switch our put on our running cap now uh, and say there's no races in the foreseeable future. Uh, everything that was pushed uh, away from the spring and now the summer races are affected and and uh, you know we're we're moving into they were pushed to the fall and some of the fall races. You that mean are, official uh, races, not like the races that I make up and just go out and run because <laughs> not Conti uh, unofficial whatever. races, but you know things like Boston and London and you know all the big races and 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 really any race that is on the ca- is you know that isn't on the calendar any longer. Uh, how are how are you suggesting people train through this? What do you without a you know without a prize or a focus or a goal? Um, you know, for in the foreseeable future, what uh, what are you suggesting as far as um, you know, training and getting and staying sane even more? Well, I think this gives people a great opportunity because a lot of people don't go into races fully prepared, especially with marathons. And so this gives people an opportunity now to not rush the process and really train themselves and develop themselves aerobically so that when it's time to race again, they can run even better. You know, running is it should never be about the extrinsic motivation anyway. You know, it's not about the shiny metal. It's about what it does to you on the inside. It's about trying to become you know, a better athlete, a better human, to learn about yourself. And this is an opportunity for people to really explore all those intrinsic factors related to running and to also train smarter. And really develop themselves. You know, most people when they train for a marathon, they, they ramp things up too quickly. Maybe they get injured, or even if they don't get injured, they don't spend enough time, you know, 
you need like many, many weeks of the given stimulus in order to fully respond and adapt and habituate to that stimulus. So don't just spend you know, one week at 50 miles and then go to 55 and then one week at 55 and then go to 60. You know, spend a month running 50 miles, then spend a month running 55 miles, then spend a month running 60 miles. That's really the best way to train and only change the stimulus once you have realized all the, the benefits of the stimulus that you've been working at. And so this, I see this as an opportunity for people to take more time at each level of training stress before increasing the stress and to fully adapt and respond to the training in a, a way that will make them faster when it counts later. Awesome. I hope that everybody listening, by the way, I'm going to give you a plug here that, as you said, take the time, learn. How, how about take this time to really elongate training plans, an opportunity to train, but how about an opportunity to educate yourself? And um, by the way, um, Revolution Running, it's a great time to take a look and maybe learn a little bit more. So tell everyone where they can find that information to maybe get certified or even, you know, a little bit more for themselves. Yeah. I mean, the certification has been something that I've been very you know, proud of and it started about five years ago. And uh, now it's open to runners who just want to learn how to be better. You know, so it's, you can take it as a fitness professional or a coach to get certified and, and get the continuing education credits that come along with it. Or at, uh, at half price, you could just take it to, to your own running interest and, and wanting to learn about how to train smarter and better. So now it's open to runners as well. So you just go to the website, revolutionrunning.com. There's a two after the, the O in revolution because it's an acronym for running economy, VO2 max, and lactate threshold, which are the three physiological factors of running fitness and performance. And so that's how I came up with the name revolution running to address the, the physiology that, that dictates performance. All right. And now tell us again, run through the list of your books. Do you even remember at this point? Because you have so many. Uh, well, yeah. All, you want all of them? You want me to list all of them? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. The first one is called How to Survive Your PhD. So I wrote that partly when I was in school and the rest of it I wrote when I was done. So it's all about uh, how to navigate the PhD process of the graduate student who gets stressed out. Uh, book number two is 101 Developmental Concepts and Workouts for Cross-Country Runners. Uh, number three is 101 Winning Racing Strategies for Runners. Number four is Running for Women. So it's all about women's issues and pregnancy and menopause and training around the menstrual cycle and, and all the unique characteristics of female. And number five is Running a Marathon for Dummies. So I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to become a part of that well-known brand of books get to write a dummy book. Number six is The Inner Runner. Number seven is Run Your Fat Off. Number eight is 14-Minute Metabolic Workout. Number nine is Exercise, Exercising Your Way to Better Sex. And number 10 is Lose It Forever, The Six Habits of Successful Weight Losers from the National Weight Control Registry. There you go. Bam. Dang. How does that feel to read all of those? Does it feel pretty gratifying? It's very gratifying that uh, to go from having an idea to then getting a publisher. You know, i got to thank my agent. I have a great agent in New York who I've been working with since 2008. And, uh, yeah, it's been very fulfilling. I'm about to start working on an 11th book here pretty soon. It's very fulfilling to be able to come up with an idea, look for holes in the marketplace and you know, what hasn't been done. Because I don't want to just write a book that's been done before. You know, you see a lot of people on social media peddling their books and, and uh, you know, it's already been done before. They're not saying anything unique that hasn't already been said before. I'm always trying to come up with books that, that have not been done before and then combine that with my interest and my, my educational background. So, yeah, it's extremely fulfilling. I mean, I, I want to have this body of work that I can point to, you know, so when I finally leave this world, I have a legacy that is left that people can enjoy and learn from and benefit from. It's extremely fulfilling. Well, we are super grateful always that you 
take the time out of your day and come on and talk to uh, the Two Fit Crazies and spread your knowledge and enlighten all of our listeners around the world with everything you have going on because there is uh, there's a lot. There's a lot happening right now. And I think that, you know, just keeping moving and focusing on yourself and the positive things going on is really going to make a difference. So, Dr. Jason Karp, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Awesome. So with that said, it is Christine Conti. And I'm Brian Prendergast. And we are two fit crazies. And the microphone. We are where it's at. Peace.